Hi, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher, and I am excited today to present the fourth episode of Interview with the PD Pod. This is one that I've been looking forward to for a while, and it's because I had the opportunity to interview Jack Flynn down at IPOS. Jack is somebody who probably needs absolutely no introduction to this crowd. Jack has served for the POSNA as its president for the SRS on the research committee. He's headed up IPOS. He's been on the board at the PSSG. And I would go so far as to say that if there is a committee or a leadership role that you can think of, Jack has probably not only done it, but done it well. I think Jack is universally thought of as a tremendous leader, as the head of the group up at CHOP, but also as a tremendous educator and researcher and academician. One of the things that I am so respectful of Jack for is his ability to continue to be a solid family man, and you'll hear a lot of that in the podcast. I think that he is a really unique individual in his ability to see the role and value in caring for our patients, but also for caring for ourselves. And I think that there are about 10 talks that I would consider that Jack gives that are true game changers. And they span as far as things like femur fractures or creating a care group within the operating room. But also, I think probably one of my favorite talks is his on seven habits of a highly happy surgeon, which hopefully some of you have heard. So this is a a big thanks to Jack for all of his work. You will notice there was a little glitch about halfway through because we initially lost half of our recording and had to go back and do it. But Jack shrugged it off and did a tremendous job. And it didn't seem like there were any issues afterwards. I'd also like to thank all of you for your continued support of this podcast and concept. And of course, of course, of course, to Carter Clemens for all of his hard work on this. So thank you and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. Okay, so I am here this morning in a beautiful workroom with Jack Flynn. It is December in Orlando, and we're looking out at Universal Studios, and we're on the penultimate day of IPOS, which has been a wonderful meeting as always. And I had picked Jack, I'd asked him to speak because of his role in this meeting. I think it's a little bit appropriate that we would talk at something that you worked so hard in in building. And we're going to be talking a little bit about your background and leadership and work-life balance. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Um, So I know that you're sort of a Northeastern guy. Um, You sort of uh, work predominantly in the Northeast. Tell me a little bit about your family and and where you grew up and how your childhood went. Well, I really appreciate you starting with that because that is the central core of really who I am as a human. I grew up in Delaware, Newark, Delaware, because that's the home of the University of Delaware Fighting Blue Hens. And my father was one of the assistant football coaches there and a track coach. So I am the son of a football college football coach. And that still colors everything I do, including this little uh, tab on my thing that says no whining, <laughs> my badge. So my dad played there and uh, decided to stay and coach and start a family. I'm the oldest of six kids. My mom was an elementary school teacher and was thrilled to just be a stay-at-home mom. And there's five boys in the family. We all played high school football and several of us played college football. And I grew up in a football household. It was also a pretty lower middle class setting. You're, if you're a college football coach in the 70s, an assistant uh, Division II college football coach in the 70s, you're making about 15000 a year. And, my, uh, and you, have, you have a family of eight. And it was a tough, we had the power turned off many times. We ha- almost had our house repossessed. But it was an amazing 
it was amazing growing up with that. And I guess maybe some of, a little bit of my leadership maybe started early, being the oldest of six kids and trying to help my parents keep order in a chaotic house. I mean, five boys and a girl. <laughs> so it was very chaotic. So that's an essential thing about that has really has driven me is that background. And then the other thing that uh, really has driven me is a break I got in seventh grade. The Delaware Public Schools, which I was in, were in crisis. It was the busing era in Delaware and the schools were going downhill. And my parents looked around and said, especially my mom, the elementary school teacher said, I am not having my kids go through the public schools. So working, I don't know how my dad did it. There was a philanthropist at the University of Delaware who funded me to go to a private school starting in seventh grade. And that was a total wake up call. The school's called Tower Hill School and it was in Wilmington. I used to have to take a public bus up the highway for a half an hour to get to this school. And then my dad and mom somehow put all six of us through private school because they said education is everything. And they knew that the schools were just holding tanks where we were. One of the most transformative moments of my life was getting into this school where there was 50 kids in the graduating class. My best friend is Chris from high school, Senator Chris Coons, U.S. Senator from Delaware. It was that kind of group of just amazing people, the best of the best in the state in the northern part of the state. And immediately I say one of the things I gained from going there is I learned the smell of excellence. I learned to come into an institution or an environment and look around and say, this is this kind of mediocre or wow, this is excellence and I love this. And how do I, you know, the imposter syndrome, how do I fit in? How do I grow and grow myself and become good enough to actually be here? Wow. So with your because I, I know you're so involved with your learners now. Were your parents incredibly involved with your academics or with six kids and trying to make all this work? Did they sort of let you go and run? They let us run. It was a different era where it was very hands-off parenting. And, uh, you know, you would you had, had to figure out how to study. I, I, it was very hard for me to study effectively in high school. I'm not going to... Uh, you, you, to go upstairs and be able to have a half an hour of quiet time where you could write a paper or something was almost impossible to find in our house. And we were expected to do chores. You had to do your own laundry. You had to do all that stuff. It was the only way to make this family work. And although my parents were involved in getting us to the right place, they know were in no other way responsible for how we did academically. And what we were doing academically was far above what they could even help us with. I, Neither of my parents could help me with my math homework after sixth or seventh grade, for instance. But they held us to a very high standard and they made us, they didn't say it a lot, but they made us feel the fact that they were sacrificing everything. Like, we can't pay the mortgage right now because we're shelling out a little bit of money despite this donor who's helping with your tuitions. We're on the edge here, but we think education is so important. We're going to put it all on the line. And that, I just carried that with me uh, and my brothers and sister have all the way through. So as the first child in a big family like that, were you the type A? I mean, a lot of firstborns are sort of the type A most driven one, or is are you a group of really driven kids? It's, it's a mix, of, uh, but we have everything. We have doctor, we have lawyer, we have business people, we have teachers. Uh, my sister is a nurse at DuPont at, at uh, oh, wow. Wilmington, so she's a pediatric nurse. So we have a mix of people, yeah. And so how did medicine come about? Because you went to Hopkins for undergrad, yeah. and your major was natural history. Yeah, natural sciences. Natural sciences, okay. Yeah, so I thought a little bit about medicine, a little bit, but like so many people, the only people, I, I grew up playing football and baseball in high school, and so I mostly saw orthopedists yeah. <laughs> fixing a number of fractures when I was young. I was a skinny little kid uh, who was 
crushed easily by bigger kids. <laughs> but um, my, I went off to college. I went to Johns Hopkins. And the reason I went to Johns Hopkins was because the football coach said I could play baseball and the baseball coach said I could play football. And I really wanted to play two sports. I was definitely not good enough to be a D1 athlete, except maybe as a punter. Um, but uh, I was able to play two sports at Johns Hopkins. They had good baseball and pretty good football at the time. And it also was close by. It was, you know, it's, it's an hour and a half from my house. And uh, that's when I really got in this environment where a lot of people were preparing for medicine and uh, made me really start thinking about it. Um, it was it was really mostly when I got to college. I was, and, and the natural sciences major allows you to get your pre-med requirements, but I, I like I really like reading and writing a lot, and I didn't want to do a pure like biophysics major or something. Okay, and then from there, I know that you went to Pitt, but what was the path that brought you to CHOP? And sort of a little bit, paint a little bit of that picture. Um, well, one thing that I got to tell you, uh, the most important thing that happened in college to me was not sports or pre-med, but meeting my wife my first week of college. So September 11th, 1981, I met Mary, and that really colored my whole experience there and my pathway. So to your point, time to go to med school, Mary got a, um, an amazing graduate deal in um, for a master's in applied mathematics at Carnegie Mellon, so wow. to go to Pitt. Yeah. Uh, and that worked out great, and we lived off her graduate stipend. She's the brains of the operation, and uh, we lived off her graduate stipend in Pittsburgh, and then... Then I fell in love with orthopedics thanks to Ed Hanley. He became my mentor at Pitt and uh, he recommended I go to Boston. So we, uh, my wife and I went to Boston to do the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Program and it was a great place for her. Uh, did mathematical modeling for businesses like corporations, trucking corporations and, and insurance and stuff like that. And she was kind of rising up rapidly. But Boston was a, had many, many opportunities for her. So we were very much taking our pathway together. But the other thing I just got to point out as we talk about this pathway is Mary and I were talking about family and having a family and being a mother and father in college before either of us even were thinking about careers. And the essence of who I am is I wanted to be a dad. That's the most important thing to me. I, I wanted to be a dad long before I wanted to be a doctor. And this may come up later in our conversation about how suddenly being impacted by the intensity of a academic orthopedic career impacts what I always want to do. And Mary always wanted to be a mom. She grew up in a family of eight kids. And so we were going to be mom and dad. And that was our plan. And we started our family when I was in residency. We had our first uh, in my PGY3 year in Boston. Wow. Um, so that's our journey. And it's very much a journey together where we've kind of gone through Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Boston, and then back down to the Philadelphia area. And so uh, obviously you had a lot of mentors. And we'll talk a little bit about mentorship. You had a lot of mentors once you got to orthopedics, yep. but Ed Hanley, it sounds like was a big mentor to you he early a, on. Yeah. He was He's a great guy. Tremendous. Yeah. Yes. He was the one who taught me the only thing worse than unshined shoes or unshinable shoes. <laughs> he said that to me in front of a large group while I was just a little medical student rounding with the orthopedic team. Yeah, he, he taught me a lot about how to be a class act and how to do the right thing and how to lead by being an inspiring person. And uh, I don't think he understands how powerful a mentor he was. That's great. Yeah, yeah he, I actually got to work with him when I was a, a medical student in Charlotte. And he spoke so highly of Pitt. Uh, yeah. he, he loves yeah. it there. But he, he impacted me, he wrote one of my letters, and he says that he's an incredible guy. So when you came to CHOP, that was your first job, right? Yes. Yeah. Came first right job. out. And, and obviously, you know, we know what CHOP is now. Yeah. And I have to admit, I don't know what CHOP was sort of when you were starting out. But 
Did you see sort of the visionary kind of place that it is right now? Or was this just, hey, I got a job? That's a really insightful question because you have to understand the lay of the land back then to understand how just incredibly lucky and how this all kind of fell into place. I went, I did my fellowship in DuPont for two reasons. One, Kasser had just become chief in Boston and he said, Jack, you really need to go somewhere else. I'd love to have you stay here. And it'd be so easy for me as a chief to have a fellow who I've, Kasser was my mentor, by the way. Kasser was named my mentor internship. All the interns in that program were named somebody. And I just happened to get this guy, Jim Kasser, who was not chief of orthopedics at that time. He was a he was just a, he was an attending there. And so I met with him my internship year in surgery and went up and had my first meeting with him. Um, and so he was really my uh, main mentor all the way through residency, assigned and then real, you know, not just, you know, they name you one and then sometimes you find other mentors. I found other mentors, but Jim was really the one that was officially, Jim said, you got to go somewhere else. Jim had trained at DuPont with uh, Beatty. He said, you got to look at this place. One, I want you to go away. Secondly, it's the yin and the yang of Boston Children's. At that time, they were amazing with Gate Lab. They were amazing with uh, NCP. They were amazing with syndromes and stuff like that. And Boston Children's was amazing with trauma and spine. So the two of them together, you know, the, the program I was in, you did a, it was a six-year program. So I did a super chief after graduation, basically, sort of, at Boston Children's, operating with John Hall and John Emmons and all, and Mike Mills and that group. So I'd already done a six-month fellowship in Peds Ortho. Then I went to DuPont and saw a whole different... I learned Gate Lab with Freeman Miller. I learned all these syndromes and interesting stuff, and it was a great combination of things. And also, my parents were right down the road. Yeah. At that point, we had had three kids. I had my third, and it was just, we just, having the help nearby was just incredibly valuable. And then, fellowships rolling along, and there aren't a lot of jobs in the United States for Pete's Ortho. It was a very transitional time. I knew I wanted to be an academic, so I knew I wanted to teach and do research and write, and there were really only it was uh, Ray Marcy in Atlanta asked me to come back. I had interviewed for fellow. He asked me to come back and look at a job there. They offered me to stay at DuPont. And then one day I was walking. I still can picture it. I was walking down the steps of my rental house in Delaware doing fellowship. And JB Jess in the back, there was a square ad for a Peds Ortho job at Penn, a chop. And I had not heard of this. They didn't have POSNA job board. So I uh, threw my stuff in and I interviewed. And Dennis Drummond was the guy then. It was not in good shape. I would say at that point, CHOP was the third or maybe the fourth best pediatric orthopedic program in the region. Oh, wow. um, St. Chris was strong with Peter Pizzatello. <clears throat> DuPont was much stronger. It was it was like DuPont, Boston, and Toronto way back, you know, with Dean McEwen and all that. So we were down the list. Um, but when I went and interviewed with Dennis Drummond and then John Dormans, who was going to take over, and, I, and then they had me interview with some of their business people, it was very clear that they were thinking of making a, a pediatric hospital system in the way that St. Chris wasn't doing and DuPont really couldn't because of some of their foundational limits. And when I talked to people, I could really see how, where pediatric healthcare was going and what they were doing. I could also smell excellence. Going back to my point, see Everett Coop work there. I met with the surgeon in chief and I'm like, this is one of the most, he's still the surgeon in chief, Scott Adzik. It's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And I, I could see that this was going to be a place that was just excellent. The first children's hospital, all this kind of stuff. I could, I could smell it, it but it was the lowest salary. It was the most call. It was the worst job that I looked at, um, but I could see the future. And um, so they hired me as a sports 
and CP guy to take a lot of trauma call. Uh, they wanted me to start, I, I started the PAOs, doing PAOs there because I learned them from Mike Miller. So I did all the POs till Woody came. I did sports and then Ted Ganley was my first <laughs> fellow. He started the same time I did, August of uh, 1996. He was my uh, fellow. And so he wanted to do all sports. So eventually I faded my sports down. Um, took me 18 months to do my first idiopathic spine because they had tons of spine docs. But then in the early 2000s, Dennis Drummond stopped operating to take over as SRS president and pulled back. And Malcolm Ecker, another spine person, retired. And all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with spine because, you know, two-thirds of the spine senior attendings just stopped. Yeah. And it was very clear John Dormans couldn't do it alone because he had tumor practice. And so he said, you got to start a vector program and you're the other spine guy. So I just changed my whole practice. We hired David Spiegel to take over all the CP stuff and took that off me. Woody came and took over the PAOs. I pulled way back from sports. And really, so for the last 15 years or so, I've been almost entirely spine-oriented. I got you. Wow, that's fascinating. And the leadership component, was that, you know, you came in as sort of a younger guy amongst a, people, a group of people who, like yeah. you said, were near the end of the career. Were you instantly thrust into a leadership role, or did you build into that, and they Not treated you like a young surgeon, here you go? Absolutely. Um, in, in fact, really the opposite, because I start, the month I started was a month after John Dormans took over as chief, and he was a young chief. So all the leadership focus was on John getting his program started. Dennis Drummond really invented the Pediatric Orthopedic Fellowship there and got Peds Ortho really. He turned it into the first academic Peds Ortho. It used to be just a bunch of private practice people coming into CHOP to do their cases. Dennis made it a formal program. John took it to a whole nother level. Um, with uh, He ramped up the academics further. He got the business model fantastic. Uh, he started working at the satellite office. But John was doing all the leadership, and I was just... I was loading the trucks. I was the young guy. Uh, Ted and I were taking a ton of the call. Um, I was going to a satellite like an hour to the west that was uh, an outlying satellite that they had just built. I was basically doing whatever they told me to do for, for a long time. Dennis Drummond was a great mentor. The other thing that I think is really important for this podcast for younger people is some of the best mentors you have are outside your institution because... It's human that, that if you start really taking off, you can be threatening to a mentor a little bit, especially a mentor who's practicing next to you and that sort of thing. And so develop, I, I developed a group of mentors outside of my institution. Purposefully or? It just kind of happens little by little. I think Kasser had a role in it, some of his friends. So I found Jim Beatty uh, mentoring me and giving me advice. I found Chad Price mentoring me and giving me advice. I found Vern Tolo. These are people that I kind of ran into. I did the Academy Leadership Fellows Program in 2004, I think. And I think Vern Tolo had just finished his present. So I did look, I wanted to build a strong slate of mentors outside of my institution because I knew that that would help. And it, it just paid off enormously. I talked to all my fellows about how important it is to connect with people outside your institution and get mentorship there. They have a different perspective necessarily than people inside. And they can also tell you, you know, say you want to leave and go take a chief job. Are you going to go down the hall and talk to your mentor who's the boss? You need to bounce that off people that you trust that are outside of a perspective of your institution and stuff. So that's a key theme I learned early on. So how do you, that's, I mean, it's so valuable. And I've been fortunate to have people like you and others who have mentored me. But uh, I think part of that's built through the academic machine and the nature of positive. But Obviously, a lot of people who are going to be listening may not have that, you know, they may be in a smaller program, they may not have access to yeah. immediate mentors. How do you tell your fellows who are coming out to build a mentor if they're going to be going into, say, a private practice in, you know, a small town in, in Georgia? 
I think part of it, uh, you're getting your mentors with where you do pediatric orthopedic fellowship. And so many of our pediatric orthopedic fellowships right now in the U.S. have just a great group of mentors. So you stay tightly connected to that. And I mean, I still stayed tightly connected. Peter Waters was a great mentor and John Emmons. So I stayed tightly connected to my sort of fellowship people that's sort of from Boston. And uh, so I would recommend that's probably where you start. You mm -hmm. start with your fellowship. You just did that. You just went to San Diego or Texas or Boston or Ch Chopper or something like that. So you've got those mentors and you can develop them by coming to meetings. I can't tell you this week how many people have asked me to sit down for 15 minutes and they tell me where they are and they just have some questions randomly. You got to kind of put yourself out there. It's it's uncomfortable and awkward, and I'm a relatively shy person in many ways. So you put yourself out there. Pediatric orthopedics is a very welcoming community full of people who love to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I can, couldn't agree more. And people are in, inherently friendly, which I think is great, yes. and both on the trainee side and I think on the mentor side. So when you were starting early in your practice, what goals did you have? I mean, you, you talked about the goal of being a, a parent, which we'll get yeah. to when we're talking about work-life yeah. work balance. You wanted to be an academician. Did you have defined goals? Did you list them? How did the future look with regards to the goals that you were setting early on? The really everything just it was my dad's voice echoing in my head. We used to, the only way we could survive in that crazy chaotic family of eight with five boys was make yourself useful. He used to always say, "Make yourself useful." What what are you sitting down for? Look, the, you know the grass needs to be cut. Or the, make yourself useful. And I just always had that voice in my head, and it's been one of the most valuable things for me. So when I got to chop, make yourself useful. What does that mean? It means, hey, you got to take a little more call. Can you get the CP program up to modern snuff? You just came from Dupont. We need you to cover that satellite. Just make yourself useful. Serve the program. Come on, John Dormans is trying to ramp this thing up. He can't afford a junior partner who's having anxiety anxiety attacks or who is, you know, is having issues, you need to just go and you need to be really useful to your partners. And we all felt that we're kind of like a private practice in this academic thing. So you have to every tub on its own bottom, you've got to support yourself and kind of grow. And then um, I also wanted to put myself out there. Part of what I knew and John Dormans was building this academic thing, he needed his young guys starting to fly the flag. And how do you do that? Well, it's hard to get a paper on the even back then, POSNA was tough. Uh, I started out at AAP, actually. I started presenting papers. Skaggs and I used to present a ton of papers, and we used to be very involved in the AAP because it was a great place to start practicing presenting, but also you started meeting a network of people, and then I started presenting at POSNA. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to grow your career to be presenting at the podium somehow because people get to know who you are. They get to recognize you. And people want to mentor somebody who looks like they are going to be contributing to the field. And I wanted it to be very clear in my first 10 years that I'm going to be useful at home and I'm going to be useful to pediatric orthopedics. So the other thing is I started to research network, which I can't emphasize how powerful that is. When titanium elastic nails came out, it immediately struck me as a young attending that this is going to change the way we do femurs. It's not just going to be casting, traction and casting and a solid nail for a skeleton mature. There's this other thing. And so this was the late 90s. I got a hold of my friend Jim Casser and I said, let's put some centers there and then Beatty. And we put together one of the first elastic nailing studies of femurs and put that out there without like knowing people. And, and then I got to be known as a finisher. I got to be known as somebody who takes a project and finishes it. And there's my mentor's name on the paper. And wow, it's fun working with this young guy. He's a little nuts, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. and so I used that kind of thing. And, and so, you know, five, 10 years in, I felt like I now was regularly getting to present and I was building this network of mentors. I did the Pasta Traveling Fellowship in 2002, which was an amazing experience. David Skaggs and Ken Noonan were my two traveling wow. fellows through Europe. But 
it did two things for me. It made me more comfortable. I'm actually scared to death of public speaking. That helped a bit. And the second thing it is, it just made me feel extremely indebted to Posna for letting me go on this. And I just felt even more driven to try to uh, like give back to the organization somehow after that traveling fellowship. I had never been to Europe before. Uh, Flynn wasn't on an airplane until I interviewed at Vermont for med school. Like, I just never got, I yeah. never, and like, I got to go to Europe and Posna paid for it. What? Yeah. With, with friends? With two yeah. great friends yeah. that became lifelong friends. And I'm still indebted. How am I going to pay back Posna for letting me do a traveling fellowship? That's awesome. So you had these two great mentors, but also uh, leadership role models in Drummond and Dormans. Yes. How did their leadership style sort of look compared to yours, especially yours now? What did you take from them and what have you sort of changed to make your own? Um, but, I'm, but I'm sure they had a, a huge influence in terms of how you lead. They did. I think both of them had, had had very different styles. I Dennis Drummond wasn't the chief. He wasn't the chief anymore, but he had moved into this other role where he was just mentoring young people. And this is all brought back. I had to write his tribute when he passed away this summer. Uh, it reminded me how much time he spent with medical students, with new attendings, with residents. How many he'd pull you into his office and uh, he'd say, Laddie, tell me about your this study you're working on, Laddie. And you'd give him the idea and he'd tear it apart, but he'd say, what we're trying to figure out in orthopedics right now is this, and so take it this way, or you know, that's not strong enough evidence, you're gonna have to throw that one out, we need to just collect more cases, try it again in two years. He was such a great mentor and he was funny and he was clearly enjoying what he did. I would not say Dennis Drummond was the most organized guy. <laughs> um, Things, whether in many ways, uh, finances and other things were a little bit in shambles. Uh, and John Dormans came in and his leadership style, he was, I mean, he is, uh, um, he organizationally, he just is fantastic at organizing things and building. He's a builder. He builds programs. He develops faculty. Uh, he, he, he made the business run amazingly well. He was an incredible fan of the Getting Things Done book. He had a consultant come in and like straighten out his office in the getting things done mode. And he had us next action step. And so he was that kind of leader. It wasn't always fun. And he knew that. And we all knew that. But he brought up some discipline that uh, Drummond, Drummond brought the fun and Dorms brought the discipline, maybe the best way to. And, and have you tried to sort of combine those two to be a fun but disciplined yeah. leader? That's a very good summary. I try to show the fun and enthusiasm that's necessary to take people to their highest energy level to get hard things done. But at the baseline, the meeting's got to run on time. Uh, we're not going to get together and talk about something unless we're actually making next action steps and things are getting done. I'm not going to waste your time. Dorman's hated meetings. And uh, because if you just sit there and talk, it, it, there's some value to doing that. But really, busy surgeons, if they're going to stop for a while, put their faces together for an hour or a day in a retreat, they better be transformative. Um, and uh, John Dorman's really helped me appreciate how important that is for busy surgeons. We just don't muddle around all day like hospital administrators doing my three o'clock meeting, my one o'clock meeting. So how do you do, how do you get around that? That's a little bit of a sidebar, but you know we are obviously sort of a seven to five, six, seven yeah. in the evening, yeah. kind of especially a lot of times. How do you work that as a leader? How do you maintain having appropriate meetings and useful meetings in the day when the people who you're collaborating with are you know either in the yeah. OR, or in clinic, or in research, or whatever? Late afternoon is meeting time. Yeah. Four to six is really meeting time, and then we do our faculty meetings on Thursday morning at six thirty because it's the late start OR day, so we can go six thirty to seven thirty with without impacting really anybody. And then we have a retreat once a year on Martin Luther King Day because the ORs and clinics are down and we get the entire faculty together in a room and that's where we talk all day and we make strategic plans and stuff like that. And that takes an enormous amount of work to get 
get that meeting right and get the guests right and all that. That's interesting. That's great. You've created, and, and obviously the, the legacy of the people ahead of you have created this group of, you know, incredibly driven, smart, high functioning um, surgeons. But I still assume, and I, I don't know the group well enough in totality to, to guess that there are leaders and then there are some people who are sort of role players. How do you look for leaders within your organization and how do you manage the people who want to be sort of role players and yeah. load the trucks and do a lot of clinical yeah. work? It just comes back to make yourself useful. There's many different ways to be useful. You would not want me to be your accountant. You would not want me to be your lawyer. Um, I'm not really good at looking at bylaws and fixing a word that is a little confusing. You wouldn't want me running your basic science lab, but I'm really good at education. I'm really good at meeting organization. I'm really good at counseling people who are having troubles or something like that. And I have other members of my group who are good at many of those other skills. Shah has an MBA. So you, you make yourself useful by using your skill set. So part of what you have to do as a leader is look and see what people's skill sets are. We have people who are just incredibly good at coming up with research ID and getting it done. We have some people who are very good at building culture in their clinics and, and in the OR. We have some people who are very good at uh, mission, people like David Spiegel, who mm -hmm. brings the world mission. So those people, I'm not going to speak negative about anybody, there's skill sets that they don't have. And so recognizing bring out the best in people and figuring out how people can feel like they're really useful, I think is one of the most important things. So there's leaders and followers and everything. I'm a follower on many topics that I'm not the best at. And I, I do need to not be so arrogant to think that I can lead all these different things. I got to put the best person in charge of that. We have five different directors in our group. And I, you know, I meet with the directors and they do their thing and the directors of uh, research and, and safety and, and clinical care. And we have a business person and uh, a person who does education. And I expect them to be useful there. And that's intentional. You've created those people. Those, those, those roles did not exist before I took over in 2014. Yeah, it's a team of teams. Do you feel like with the people you have, you can create leadership or you sort of have to feel out what their natural tendencies are? You got to feel out their natural <clears throat> tendencies. You also got to be really sensitive to where they are in life. You can't load up somebody with an awful lot of leadership stuff if they have an overwhelming load at home right now or they're dealing with a health problem or something. You have to be really sensitive. You, you are running a clinical practice, which is busy and stressful. You're also trying to be academic. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to make you in charge of education. You now need to meet with all incoming residents and you need to do this. You got to be sensitive about what else people have in their plate. So you got to kind of be aware of that because it's going to be a setup for fail if you give somebody a big kind of leadership job. And when I say big, it's mostly how much time it takes per week or whatever, or per month. If they're in a position where that's just going to be hard for them to do because of other stuff that's going on. So also very intentional though. In other words, if you have a, this bright shining star who likes research, you're sort of trying to build the research side of thing and not necessarily overload them with, like you said, meeting with the residents right. all the time. Yep. And you look at that intentionally and say, you know, man, I'm going to throw out a name. Woody yeah. is really good at doing, you know, hip Educa research yeah, yeah, and education. education. Yeah. And then potentially uh, offload him from other areas and look to backfill that keep area. Keep him away from, for most part, keep him away from the business piece. And he doesn't have to deal with the IRB and our research manager very much and uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, recognizing that any one individual, especially a busy surgeon who's supposed to be running a busy practice and also doing academic stuff, really can't do it all from a time standpoint. And also, 
no particular leader usually has the full slate of talents in every single category to be of most use to the group. So one of the things that's gone really well is creating sort of a team of teams, creating a group of people who do all these different, taking somebody who really is into the business side or really into the research side, really into the education side. And what's gone really well is kind of letting them run. And it does a few things. It lets them develop their own leadership skills. And and it also gives a group of our practice members a real deep understanding of what some of the struggles are so that there's good transparency on what what the issues we all face. And that's been that part has been very successful. Of that same strategy, the part that is not been as good as I want is how often we actually get together and meet. The goal was to meet monthly or quarterly. And I will find, I'll look up sometimes and realize that I haven't gotten together with my directors for three or four months. And it's because we cover all these satellites and stuff and just picking a liter- a time when we could sit down together and be face to face is quite a challenge. So I would say within that same strategy, the strategy is working very well and, and everyone is working well independently. And I'm seeing really uh, fantastic leadership develop among this group of five people. But getting us all together has been a little bit of a challenge. Have there been times, I mean, since you've been in a leadership role, even before when you were there, where you think you may have overburdened that three-legged stool that, yeah. you know, you can really only sort of function at three legs, I yeah. think. And if you start overloading people too much with too much service, too much education, too much yeah. research, too much clinical productivity, where things maybe didn't go quite as well. And people, you know, you had to dial them back and say, listen, you know, you need to sort of stay in your lane and focus on these things because you're spreading yourself too thin. So the other thing that's gone very well is I've made formal one-on-one faculty meetings that we do once a year. We do them in the early fall and sit down quietly in a room with somebody at a closed door for half an hour and delve into three aspects, uh, your work, which is where your practice, your career, which is academics and all these other interesting things you're doing, and then your life. I want to know what's going on. And, and those half hour conversations have really helped me get a sense of whether somebody is kind of the bucket is spilling over or whether some people are literally like, I don't have enough to do. I'm looking for the next interesting thing in my life. And uh, it just doesn't come up as much in those hallway conversations or scrub sink conversations that we all do. It seems like making it a little bit of a formal process kind of facilitates that. So just going back to the thing that you were talking about before in terms of the challenge of getting people together, do you have any tips or thoughts on how that can be better accomplished? Do you now preemptively schedule it a year out and have your scheduler sort of work through making sure that it's on the books or... Any not, thoughts and strategies? Not, it, it, actually, that it, scheduling it a year out is almost too far. These one-on-one meetings we schedule, I usually schedule 60 to 90 days in advance. We start assembling the dates in the summer and we do it in the fall. And it stretches out over two or three months before I can get to all 26 people in our group for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the one thing that has worked in scheduling is everybody knows that Martin Luther King Day, uh, we're all going to get together and that is locked into everybody's calendar. And that is the time where we can get the whole group in the room for our annual retreat, which continues to add a lot of value. Yeah, I think that's a, a great idea. After we were chatting yesterday, I actually talked about that with our with Mike Bush and said, they're onto something there because it's, it's hard to get people together. It is. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing it's hard is you do that, but you really want, you might want a leader from the hospital to come in like, uh, and speak to your group and they really want to talk to all the orthopedists that right. they possibly can, but they may not want to come in on Martin Luther King Day because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're hospital administrators and that's their day off. So. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. All right, so I want to um, shift to uh, work-life balance. And, um, you know, I, th- I really do think this is something that you are well known for, um, whether or not you believe in, in yourself. But, 
you know, I think a lot of us have heard the talk on seven habits of a highly happy, very happy surgeon. And, you know, but I suspect that that has come out of an area of, you know, personal struggle, sort of how to, how to achieve that. Can you tell us that? Can you tell us that story and sort of how that came about and how you have come to a point where you at least feel a little bit more comfortable understanding work-life balance? Yeah, I guess the best way to frame it is as I did at the POSNA pre-course where my talk was uh, mistakes made and lessons learned. And that really is the way as I look back on the process of the last 23 years, it's the best way to explain it to my peers. As I explained early in this interview, Mary and I were are just absolutely family-focused people. We come from huge families. All we ever wanted to do was be parents, and this career thing was kind of on the side for the most part as we think about our priorities. And five to ten years in, progressively over a period of time, I noticed that we had sort of a direct collision between this booming academic surgical practice that just was more and more opportunities coming at all times with a family of four kids who were just wonderful and they're doing all this stuff and you're sitting there at the dinner table and one day I looked around when my oldest was about 13 or 14 and I'm the dumbest guy in this room. Wow. <laughs> I want to hang with these people yeah. every night. And, and I can't because I got a conference call one night or I got to go to a meeting or something. So it was this direct collision and this tension that I could see both aspects of it were going to be getting worse over the next five to 10 years. And just stepping back and trying to think about what it was going to take. And then that's that's where you realize things like you got to become a pro at time management if you're going to be there for your family. You got to take care of yourself to some extent in terms of getting sleep and exercise and building places where you can take a break. Do you think that there were things that looking back you might have done differently leading up to that other than just sort of stretching yourself too thin? I think there's a number of things. Getting knowing when you get to that point five to ten years in where you really need to concentrate on the essentialism, where you you're starting to get a real good understanding of what you do well and what you don't do well and where you can add value and where you can't. I think being self-aware of things like you probably don't want me to be the secretary of your organization because I'm not the bylaws guy, that kind of thing. I didn't appreciate it quite as much then. And I was gaining the skill set to be able to say no. You don't just say no to a senior colleague who asks you to do something. You think about it and then you say, you know, I'm, I, I know I'm not the best person to do this for you, but here's a person who's really into that kind of stuff. So learning the ability to kind of be able to consolidate what you're, where you add the most value, I guess. Yeah, I think that, the, you know, you're also sort of well known, or at least in, in, in my books, for being able to say no. And you've talked about that at also at conference. I think that's part of that highly happy surgeon yeah. talk. And it seems like that's probably progressed over time because early on, every junior partner wants to say yes to everything. And you should. Yeah. You should say yes because you just got hired and you're there to add value. So. And in a lot of situations, it depends on your practice environment, you can say yes to a lot of different things and it kind of settles out after a while. But then in other settings, especially if you start to get involved in national organizations and projects like editing a textbook, those can mushroom to the point where they just keep getting bigger and bigger. And there is no, <laughs> there's no end in sight, I yeah. guess is the best way to say it. So, so you touched on one thing um, a second ago and you, know, you uh, took on the presidency of POSNA at a pretty young age for POSNA presidents. And my suspicion is, I haven't done the research, but that 
most of the uh, previous positive and presence have been further along in their children's career right. or ch- children's lives, I should say. And yeah. so, you know, they were out of the house or whatnot, but you had kids who were still in the house during your positive yes. presidency. How did you manage work life then? And how did you keep true to the family values that you and Mary had during that period? Yeah, so that came on, I, I got pulled into the positive presidential line around 2000, I think it was about 2011. So I was 14, 15 years into my career and I still had, I had three of my four kids still at home. And that by then I had evolved, that was 15 years into the career. By then I had learned a ton about how to manage this stuff. So I immediately started turning down uh, things and it was in my own life. For instance, I just realized I'd been doing some work with industry. I had worked with company developing a spine instrumentation set. I stepped back as the positive thing came on board and I looked at how much that required me to travel how much I felt obligated to teach courses on their behalf at things like POSNA, et cetera. And I just said, you know what? I don't care. I have to completely cut my ties with all industry stuff. I dialed back my involvement in other organizations like the Academy. I dialed SRS way back at that time and stuff like that. And I just put my focus on and that helped a lot. Honestly, POSNA and POSNA presidential line is not super time consuming in, in, in terms of travel. There's only one real extra board meeting a year and there's phone calls and work you do on the side. And that was easily manageable. But what I knew I couldn't do is just keep doing all the other things. And I think that's really crucial as you go along. Somebody gives you a big new job. You really need to step back and reassess and say, what am I doing right now? that really I need to step back from temporarily or permanently. And there's always sacrifices, there's always trade-offs, but you can't just keep adding on or you're gonna, you're gonna find yourself not being good at anything you're doing. Yeah, and do you, as you have the sort of the hard charging junior faculty and you have some who are you know, yeah. really brilliant, how do you allow them to see that and come into realization that they can't do everything? Because yeah. it probably is somewhat mm-hmm. similar to, you know, having challenges in the operating room where you don't really know it until you've done yeah. it, until you've yeah. stretched too far. But yeah. but do you guide them and start saying, you know, you might want to start trying to corral in the troops a little bit because you're, you're getting too far out there? Yeah, not just my junior partners, but uh, <laughs> my peers, my colleagues in pediatric orthopedics, we have deep conversations about these issues when they get some really cool new job to whether it's in POSNA or some other organization. We have heart to hearts about how do you scale this back? I really do think when you get a job with a house full of kids, whether it is suddenly taking over as chief of a service or getting something like positive president, you got to really think about that because that's where the ego can get in the way of your values. And that's where you can start to say, oh, I get to do this positive thing. And it, again, that didn't take me away from family dinner very much. We yeah. scheduled the conference calls around that for the most part. So it didn't really impact that, but it certainly could if I would have continued with everything. If I just kept adding stuff, pretty soon you look up and you go, oh my God, I've been away 80 days last yeah. year. Yeah, wow. And uh, we have an interesting thing way that, uh, that helps me with that. Just in the city of Philadelphia, you pay city wage tax every day. But when you are working, which means your professional career and you're outside of city limits, you can apply for a refund for city wage tax. So any day I'm here teaching my profession in Orlando, I'm technically working outside of city border, I can apply. So it makes us count those days. So there's no, because you get money for it. You get a tax back from the city of Philadelphia. So it makes me aware of every single year, how far, and it's a painful process to get your city wage tax back, but it is eye-opening to say, this is, I am up like 15 days compared to last year. Something has got to change. 
wow, that's sort of a nice way to tally it because I just go, yeah, I think I was about the same number of meetings this year. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, I think having a quiet time at the end of a year around the Christmas, New Year's time and looking back through your uh, Outlook calendar, whatever you use, and seeing how much you were away, if you're in that stage where you're adding things on, can be really eye-opening. And ask yourself, how many vacation days did I take compared to away at conference days? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because one was with your family and one was you traveling. And there's always going to be, for people who are trying to do and make a big contribution, it's always going to be more. You're, we're not taking yeah. six weeks of vacation right. here, but um, something to keep in mind. Especially when your kids are yeah. growing, you can't take them away for right. know, six, eight weeks out of the year anyway. So. I'm always curious as to how people make up their day and what allows them to continue going. Can you talk about sort of on a routine week, what your day looks like? How do you fit in some personal reflection time? How do you fit in exercise? How do you, you know, how do you allow yourself to get into deep work? Yeah. So I'm really sensitive to this concept that in any given day, we all have certain periods where energy is high and energy is low, places where we can um, do certain kinds of work well and where it's not going to work. And I'm really sensitive. I talk about this Daniel Pink book. I think we all sense it without reading Daniel Pink's book called When, but he outlines the science of it very nicely in that book. So I'm very much a person whose brain works best the first four or five hours after I get up. So I really make an effort when I first get up in the morning, 4.30 or 5, I'm going to hydrate myself. I'm going to do my little meditation routine. And then for the next couple hours before the OR starts or the clinic starts, I do my commute. But I want to get really stuff that I really need to think about, whether it is, you can imagine the kinds of things. Um, it, it can be stuff for running chop orthopedics or taking care of communication with people, or it can be going over a course plan that we have in six months or something like that. It's all that kind of what I call ERTs, emails requiring thought. Um, <laughs> so I will, I collect those and I'll do that kind of work in the morning. And then I go do, you know, I go do a spine or something like that. And then I purposefully collect all my meetings and stuff in the afternoon. I don't want to sit down and meet with a hospital administrator or interview a candidate early in the morning unless we're just at the ends of the calendar. All that stuff. So I usually do, I typically do a spine in the morning, a growing case in the early afternoon, and then 3.30 to about 6 o'clock is meetings and catching up, closing electronic medical records that might be open, all that kind of stuff. And that's when my brain is kind of not its sharpest, but I certainly can get that other kind of work done. And has that changed since the kids left the house? I mean, in other words, now you don't worry about staying late. You mentioned yeah. previously about how, you know getting to soccer matches yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. Has that changed how your day has been set up since the kids moved on? It certainly has. I got to tell you, when you get, you know, my four kids are, are older and they're all in high school and stuff, honestly, with their practices and their own lives and, and their homework and all that sort of stuff, they're pretty darn busy late in the afternoon as well. So it used to be I could use some of that time, but I also would look very far out if for my kids who are very active in a certain sports season and spring was usually a certain things and fall a certain things, I would look out and I'd make these orthopedic no-fly zones. And it was one day a week or two days a week where there was a game that I really wanted to get to, that kind of thing. It wasn't in the winter, wasn't really in the summer very much, but those helped a lot. And that's the art of looking at your calendar at least 90 days out when you can put in, you can tell your secretary, clinic has to end that day at 2.30 because I need to be on the sideline by 4. And other than the, uh, the it seems like a constant 8 p.m. conference call, you're not doing a whole lot at night. When you're home, it's your, your time with Mary. You like to read, you like yeah. to sort of, you know, decompress a little bit. It's been an interesting transition. Um, until three years ago, it was basically 26 years with kids at home and 
both of our house family dinner is absolutely essential. It's almost like a religious event with tremendous attention paid to it every single night. And we can work around the conference calls and stuff like that. It wasn't too much of an issue. Um, now with empty nest, it's more relaxing, frankly. Yeah. And I, I do have more bandwidth for evening stuff in that book when Pink talks about this idea of a rebound that happens in the early evening. I never really experienced that when I had a house full of kids. I guess I was at the dinner table, but there is this period where you can, you get this little creative energy. I, I exercise usually late afternoon, early evening, and you get this little surge there. And so if my wife is out or something like that, or some, I can use, I can do it like an hour or, or two in the evening, like, uh, you know, 7.30 to nine or something. I can do creative stuff that I never knew I really had that time before. Um, but often I just read a book. Yeah, 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 which is good too. But and and so outside of you know family and work, what sort of keeps you going other than you know caring for your patients and your time with family? My favorite thing is outdoor exercise. That's my single favorite. Like, and there's many different categories of that. One thing that I did, which has continues to provide tremendous value, is. I learned to row. So Philadelphia has a huge rowing community. And two of my daughters were like national champion high school rowers. So you learned as an adult? I learned like, yeah, when I was like 50 something. <laughs> no, I learned, I, I guess it was, it was 2012 or 2013. So I was like 49, 50 years old. I'd never, ever been in a boat before. And I went to this camp called Craftsbury up in Vermont. Uh, Peter Waters tuned me into it because he's done the same thing. He learned to skull and he skulls on the Charles River. And I learned to row and I joined a boathouse in Philadelphia, which is an amazingly rich community that's almost 200 years old, our boathouse on Boathouse Row. And I learned to row and I joined that. And so I row almost every Sunday until we're just about at the end of the season where it gets too cold and then you start back up in March. And then I do that on my own. I take a trip. I'll go back up to Craftsbury. I used to go after Labor Day and I row outside. I've taken up outdoor biking a ton as I started to dial down the running a little bit. I love to bike outdoors and do a ton of that, especially when we go up to the our mountain lake place, the, those kind of things. So that's my real relief, hiking, that kind of thing. Just being outdoors is so great when we're always in a controlled temperature environment and fluorescent lights. So that's a real recharge for me. And fortunately, I'm really fortunate that I have people in my family that love that too. So I can row with my daughter. I can hike with my kids. I did that like about a week ago when we were away. So that's really fun. Yeah, that's great. I forgot to ask this question when we were talking earlier, and, and I always like asking it. And it's, it's as you interpret it, so it's sort of open. So when you think of the people, whether it be work or life, who is the most successful person that you know? The point being, success is defined however you want to define it. Probably my wife. I think she's probably the most successful. She is so happy with what she's accomplished and where she is in life. And I think she's probably the single, and she's so well balanced, and she just isn't as stressed as we are about asking herself every day, you know, what am I doing? You know, all that. So I would say she is uh, certainly up there as the most successful person I know. And I could name a variety of different people within pediatric orthopedics. Our chief of surgery at our hospital, Scott Adzik, is one of the most successful people on every category I know. He's a National Academy of Science. He's world famous fetal surgeon. And he has kept chop surgery at the absolute top during lots of hospital turmoil. He is one of the most successful people in all of medicine I think I've ever met. And you said he's been there basically your whole career, right? He was chief when I arrived, yeah. So he arrived in the mid-90s, and he's one of the only physicians that's on the board of CHOP, so he sits on the board, and he has basically engineered 
the growth that Chop has. He, and you know, I think about it, he's probably the most successful person in medicine that I've ever met in every category, from being in the National Academy of Sciences to his actual surgical work, to the people he's brought along, to the amazing administrative load. He's probably, yeah, he's probably the top person. That's great. I, I want to finish up with something that is always a little bit challenging, but I think can be incredibly insightful and helpful, which is complications and how we manage complications. So I think along with the concept of leadership and work-life balance, this sort of internal management of your psyche and your thoughts when things go bad is, I mean, for me, it's one of the most challenging things. And I've had, you know, my fair share of complications and the internal struggles that occur, you know, standing in the shower for, you know, a 45 minute shower the day of complication are really tough. And so it's a, a little bit of an open-ended question, but I'm curious about how you have come along and how you mentor junior partners or, you know, true peers, or maybe even people who are ahead of you when things go wrong that we're not planning on happening and that are really challenging to them from a psychological standpoint. I think at the POSNA pre-course, Tony Herring did a terrific talk in May about the uh, second victim concept and how, especially in our world, uh, it's a child. And in some aspects of pediatric orthopedics, especially spine, the complication can be absolutely life-threatening or devastating, and you just can't ever stop thinking about it. It'll never completely go away. And the healing time can be anywhere from a month to six months to a couple of years for you to really completely recover from this. So there, you know, when you have a really big complication, there's always two victims. And Tony pointed that out very well. I think the main thing is not to be alone. And I've learned that myself. And I've learned that by helping my peers and partners who are dealing with a devastating complication. You don't necessarily want to go up when you know, as a chief of a big orthopedic, you're going to know very quickly somebody's going to say something to you or every infection, they, they have to do this official process and they send it around or whatever. So you're going to know. And what I try to do is I just try to let the person gently know that I'm aware of it without hey, you got, we need to meet this afternoon. I heard what happened yesterday. I, that's the last thing I need to do is add that kind of stress burden to it. I just want to say, hey, I heard you know, a tough day yesterday. Are you okay? You want to chat or something like that? And I kind of leave it like that and I let them come back to me. I think on the second victim end, the main thing is don't be alone. Talk to other people in the practice about it. Talk to your peers, especially people that you know have had the same kind of complication. Early on, you talk to them about what should I do? What's the next step? And then later on, you need to just talk about how hard this has been. The worst thing is creating a cone of silence when you've had a complication like that. It's tempting. I, you know, you're not going to go to the microphone at national meetings and talk about what happened to you last week, exactly why. And that, that doesn't necessarily help. But coming to a meeting like this and just talking to some people about a tough thing that happened a month ago can be very therapeutic. So I think we have to be careful about, you know, obviously in a HIPAA compliant way, sharing what has happened and letting the communities offer the support, which is very much there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, how about, you know, from an internal standpoint, I mean, those things where you go and you talk to people, but how do you get through it internally? Are there resources that have come up? Are there books that have helped you understand, you know, sort of? Honestly, I think it's a little like a death of a loved one. I think it's a, it's a time process. I don't think there's any magic bullet to kind of get over it. I think Thinking it through and learning from it is valuable. And everybody always says, you know, your surgical techniques and your behavior in the operating room are greatly influenced by your last problem or complication. I think that's very true. And I do think we evolve over time in our surgical techniques based on being able to see something rare. 
I think I mentioned I do some legal defense work. And so I see maybe three or four of these cases, really bad ones a year, where you're trying to write an expert witness report to support uh, what to do. And um, so I'm living through those cases with people as well. And uh, you can really see the learning and the pain that goes on and how these people try to deal with it. So I think you learn from it. And I think you just have to recognize like a death in the family that time is going to be the only thing that can really heal because you can't turn it around. Yeah. I wanted to put a plug in for the book we had chatted about by this guy Maudat, I believe is how he pronounces it, who was the head of Google X, which was their automated driving arm. And he unfortunately lost a child in a routine appendectomy. A trocar was placed and went and pierced the aorta. And I guess for some reason it was unknown in the initially and then the patient or, and then he uh, he passed away but it's remarkable because he immediately forgave the surgeon and the whole book is sort of describing how he comes to terms with you know these things at the end of the day do happen i think for me that's been the most challenging you think that the complication won't happen to you because you're better than that you're smarter than that you've got some insight even if, if it's never happened to you before that others don't have and you forget that, you know, whether it be life in general or what we're doing is really, really complex and challenging, these are going to happen. And so for me, it was a very useful book. I had a, a period of time where I had a couple of complications in a relatively short time span that hit me really hard. And I, I went to, and I, you know, all the resources that you talked about, um, but this, that book really helped me a lot. So I wanted to put in a plug. What's the name of the book again? It's called Solve for Happy. Solve for Happy. Solve for Happy. And it, I think too, it's, He's an engineer, he's sort of, you know, computer science engineer, obviously, for, through Google. So it speaks to those of us who have a little bit of an engineering mind, and it's a little bit less fluffy in that sense, but it yeah. still is a, I mean, it's still a book that sort of tugs at your heartstrings, especially as a parent, and he's very honest the way that he goes through it. And if you have the opportunity to listen to it in Audible, which is how I did yeah. it, he narrates it, and he's got this wonderful accent. And I've probably listened to it two or three times. It's great. So great. I actually keep it in our guest room in our house just in case somebody were to ever, you know, want to just sort of pick it up and start reading because it's a page turner. That's so, great. That's yeah, great too. It's all for happy. Um, but, well, Jack, I think we're good. And I can't tell you how much I've learned. And this is a, a really awesome opportunity. And we've got to know each other better, which I think is fun. And as I said before, hopefully somebody else listens to it. <laughs> if they well, don't, I, I learned a lot. I would say just if one person gains any value from our conversation, then it was definitely worth uh, sitting down. This is a this is a great process that they didn't have when I was growing up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the technological glitches we've found show that it uh, wasn't happening a couple of weeks ago, so I'm still okay. learning from it. So thanks a lot. 